The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for, not only for this church community, Lord, but for Your Word. Uh, Your Word which remains, uh, though ancient, uh, so relevant uh, for us. We thank You so much uh, that You are uh, speaking to us. Your Word is living and active, uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, Your Word says of itself. So we ask God now that You would take this uh, Word and pierce our hearts that we might be open to the movement of Your Spirit in us, uh, for Your honor and for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Today we are talking about the world's greatest sermon, preached by Trent Moore last week. No, just kidding. Uh, It was a good one. But um, we're actually talking about the Sermon on the Mount. Now, uh, so this is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 40 minutes. On the Sermon on the Mount, uh, what we're going to do is just skim uh, from about 30,000 feet and hope we hit the tip of the iceberg, uh, what you need to know. We could take 40 weeks, I believe, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. I've I've taught a class on the Sermon on the Mount uh, for five weeks in my career. I think that was at the uh, Church of the Advent. And I remember thinking I needed at least 10. Like I had each one needed at least two sessions. And probably if I had 10, I would think each one of these needs two sessions. So that would be 20. So I mean, it is so rich. Um, if you have read the Sermon on the Mount, and I, and I maintain that it is the greatest uh, sermon that there has ever been, but it doesn't work like our sermons. Uh, it might seem to you like patchwork. Uh, there are no binding illustrations uh, start to finish. He doesn't bring the Beatitudes back in at the end to kind of wrap it up in a bow like we like to do sometimes. Uh, he, uh, he just... Uh, so it might seem like patchwork, and, and that's kind of how I approached it uh, for a long time um, until I had to teach on it and kind of began to see the, that it really is a very co- coherent uh, sermon, uh, although it's certainly not a three-point sermon, right? Um, it, it is not... Uh, before we jump into the content, I want to give you just a little context. And let me say uh, right from the beginning, i show you two books that have been influential uh, for me. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount and uh, The Sermon on the Mount. So, um, uh, Sermon on the Mount by Sinclair Ferguson. He's a Scottish Presbyterian, uh, a guy I really like a lot and actually a guy I've spent a little time with. Uh, not in a few years. And then John Stott, who I hope to spend a lot of time with in heaven. Uh, he is uh, there now, but he is, um, uh, uh, you'll, many of you will know the name John Stott. But both of these are really, really good. This is from the uh, Bible Speaks Today sermon, uh, commentary series, which I think is a very uh, accessible uh, series. My, uh, my dad actually just goes through these. That's his devotion. He reads this passage and goes through about five pages of these uh, a day. Anyway, those are, those are just a little resource tip for you. Little context. Remember, we've actually said in a couple of the different teachings or sermons lately, in the beginning of Matthew, also Mark and Luke, uh, they are building uh, the case. At the beginning of the first half of their Gospels, building the case for the authority of Jesus as Messiah. And so we begin with uh, the birth of Jesus, and then we um, go through the life and teaching and miracles of Jesus. Then Peter confesses. You are the Christ. Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. The final closing argument in the uh, Jesus is the Messiah case. And everything else after that, in all three of the, fir- the first three Gospels, heading towards Jerusalem. Heading towards the cross. 
and the empty tomb. So uh, Matthew here is in the earliest, we're in 5, 6, and 7, so he's, he's talked about the baptism, the, the birth, the baptism, uh, the temptation of Jesus. Jesus emerges from the wilderness victorious over Satan and then uh, begins his ministry. And he makes a proclamation with which many of you will be familiar. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you've heard this probably before, maybe. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus begins his ministry. Uh, he Then he gather, begins to gather a messianic community. He calls Peter and Andrew and James and John and other disciples. Then he, his name spreads as he begins to heal, so he's bringing restoration, uh, a righting of wrongs. Um, and, and then chapter 5 begins, seeing the multitude... He went up on the mountain, hence the Sermon on the Mount. He's up on a teaching on a mountain as opposed to Jesus was on a level place. Sermon on the Plain, that's in Luke. We had that a few weeks ago. When he sat down, he's a teacher, his disciples came to him. So the Sermon on the Mount is a, was originally given to disciples. This is not an evangelistic sermon. This is a sermon about the kingdom life. This is a sermon describing the life of the one who has repented because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So everything, and I, I was, this is not, not like something that I came up with, I was taught this, but the Sermon on the Mount makes so much more sense when you see it through the lens of repentance. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let me give you now three chapters, deep, 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 on how you repent. What repentance, what the life of repentance looks like. So, then I, I think we need to uh, begin um, the, by asking, what is repentance? We probably have asked this before. What is, what is it? Somebody said? Turning around. Going the opposite direction. That is, that is the uh, definition of metanoia, which is the word for repentance, Tur- to turn around. And you probably have heard, and I've probably taught this before, but you've probably heard that repentance is turning from bad behavior to good behavior, right? Not so fast, or at least not first. Because before we can turn from bad behavior to good behavior... Because actually what Jesus attacks in the Sermon on the Mount is good behavior done for the wrong reasons. And so what before we can turn from bad behavior to good behavior, we need to turn from a bad attitude about God to the proper attitude about God. I don't need you, God, I have this, to I need you, God, desperately to be my Savior. And in fact, what the Sermon on the Mount does is it takes the law of God and pushes it to the highest pitch so that we are left with nothing to say except, Help me, Lord. Lord, have mercy. What's the summary of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what do we say in right one after we say those things? Well, okay, all right. Yeah, on these two commandments, hang on the law of Then what do we say? Lord, have mercy. That's right. Because the law of God put is, is first... Uh, what condemns us and convinces us that we need an intermediary. 
that we need a Savior, that we need someone to stand in our place, that if the law of God is all there is, we are toast. And Jesus takes the law and says, not only am I concerned with your outward behavior, but I'm concerned with your hearts and your deepest motivations. So, what is repentance? It is not just cleaning up your act. It is not just the bumper sticker that says, Jesus is coming, look busy, right? Um, uh, you know, if it's just to get us from a D- minus to an A+, plus, then the cross is going to have varying degrees of utility for each of us. And then we get to heaven, we're going to be just comparing who, needs, who needed a Savior more or less. What it is, is repentance is self-judgment, right? Repentance is to judge yourself to be in need of a Savior. To say, I am at the, I recognize that I am at the end of my rope and I am inadequate to bridge the gulf back to God. I want to say that when we have the absolution, in fact, we had the absolution in, uh, in our service this morning, um, the... Almighty God, the Almighty and merciful Lord, grant you absolution and remission of all your sins, true repentance, amendment of life, and the grace and consolation of His Holy Spirit. Our absolution statement distinguishes between repentance and amendment of life. Amendment of life is important, and I want that for you, and I really want that for me. But it is not the same as repentance. Repentance is self-judgment. Changing our attitude, turning... From saying, I don't need you, Lord, to saying, I'm in, I'm in every bit in need of you. So, that is repentance. That will take a lifetime for you and me to unpack. God bless you. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why is the kingdom of heaven at hand? Because the king is here, right? The king is here. Now, there's a, we, could talk, we don't have time to talk about the kingdom of heaven because I've got the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We haven't even started yet. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is kingdom life for disciples, for those who have said, yes, Lord, I repent because the King is here. The Sermon on the Mount is not what qualifies you to become a disciple. So you're not going to come to the throne of grace and say, here's my resume. I I tried to keep the Sermon on the Mount. You're going to come to the throne of grace and say, "Um, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for grace. And then whatever the rest of that, uh, that hymn is. And then uh, and you would say, and as a fruit of that, because I, in the gratitude that I have for, uh, for the grace that you've given me, I, I did my very best to honor you with a life well lived, which is the Sermon on the Mount. So it, it, it is what disciples strive for, but it is, um, it is not what qualifies us as disciples. In that sense, it's also a polemic against religion as an outward act which t- does not touch our inward reality. Uh, and we'll see that this is an overt criticism of Phariseeism. An overt criticism of Phariseeism. So, it's essentially in, um, in five piece, or four pieces. There's a preamble. That's the Beatitudes, salt and light, purpose of the law. I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's basically up through uh, verse 20, chapter 5, verse 20. Then we have the law. Uh, which is uh, not simply external, but internal, the highest pitch. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, you cannot even hate your brother. So, six, so we have six of those which 
ends with, and we're going to talk about this later uh, in, a, in a minute, the scariest verse in the Bible, in my opinion, you must be perfect, therefore, as your Father in Heaven is perfect. <laughs> Just kill me right now. Because, I, I mean, really, I mean, I... If that's it, just let's just get it over with. But thanks be to God, we have a Savior. So, but it, it does. It drives us to our knees, doesn't it? But that's not the end. I mean, I feel like I've gotten criticized sometimes for saying, like, having okay, you preached a good sermon, and then we expect you to say Amen, but you just keep going, man. And and like Jesus could have said Amen right here. You must be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. I'll see y'all later. But he keeps going, man. He keeps going, driving us to our knees. Because humans, you know, we kind of think, eh, eh. So he keeps going. Piety is the next thing. Chapter 6. Actually, um, this was our passage for Ash Wednesday. If you were with us on the evening in Ash Wednesday, uh, our buddy Roger Williams preached a great sermon uh, on, um, on prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And, um, and it was a sermon that was very faithful to the Sermon on the Mount and would drive us to our knees, I think. Who is our audience? Who are we trying to please? Right? In who or in what is our trust? That's the second piece. Because the law has driven us to our knees. Now, who's our audience? What are we really trying to please? And given that, chapter 7, truly living, I think, the great commandments. Loving God leads you to love your neighbor. You may hear that the Sermon on the Mount is uh, the greatest ethical manifesto that there has ever been. And I would agree with that. But it is meant, I believe, to drive us to repentance. So we come having repented and accepted the invitation. And we live a life of repentance. Martin Luther, when he wrote the 95 Theses, number, Theses number 1, paraphrasing here, all of life is repentance. That's a great description of the Christian life. Daily saying, I turn my life to you. In fact, I talk about that a little bit in the sermon today. I'm taking my hand off the wheel. Lord, I'm going to have to say it again tomorrow because I'm going to grab that wheel again. Right? Every day. Every minute, if you're me. Um, again, not, uh, repentance not first as behavioral, but as changing our attitude and saying we do, in fact, need a Savior. Alright. So the Beatitudes. If you're with us, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus opened His mouth and taught them, saying... And I'm certainly not going to read through all of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, but I do want to read the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Can you just hear Paul uh, Simon singing this as I'm reading? (laughs) Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. But really unlucky are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Nope, nope, sorry. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hard to believe, right? Blessed are you. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
So I've asked you what repentance means. What does blessed mean? What does it mean to be blessed? Hashtag blessed. That gets thrown around a lot, man. In God's favor. In God's favor. It's a great definition. You're in God's favor. So we do see, so all of you, uh, I'm looking around, I see a lot of Facebook people in here. Um, and maybe you're on Twitter and, you know, hashtag blessed. It doesn't matter what in the world. You know, it could be, it could be something that I'm really enjoying that is completely against the, the law and the will of God. And I'll just say, oh, I love this. Hashtag blessed on Twitter. Um, blessed does mean, in fact, that you have the favor of God upon you and that you are in, moving in the right direction. It doesn't mean that you have a lot of money, necessarily. It doesn't mean that you have a lot of stuff. You know, and I never want to say that when, um, that when you have, uh, people say, oh gosh, you know, we just feel so blessed because we have been given so much stuff. I don't ever want to say that, that you're not blessed, but I also don't, I want to hesitate because I don't want people who don't have the stuff, I don't want to say that they're not blessed. I think I've told you this story before. In seminary, um, I was sitting next to a friend of mine uh, Amy was pregnant. Everything was going great. Somebody said, how's the pregnancy? I said, man, I said, it's going great. We're just so blessed. And I realized at that moment that the friend who was sitting next to me, that his wife was pregnant also, and that baby did not have a skull. And was not going, and they knew it. She wasn't going to abort the baby, but they just, they weren't, um, they knew the baby was going to die. And it was really, really tough on all of us. And, and I just remember thinking, oh gosh, I'm not sure I know what blessed means. Blessed means that God's hand is with you. You are on the right track. Now, I used to come to the Beatitudes, and I, and I thought, it is so nice, isn't it, that God has included something for these poor people who are poor in spirit and who are meek and who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And um, it, for those who are mourning, it's just so nice for them. And I didn't see that actually... If I want to be blessed, I need to be these people, right? So let me say that poor in spirit, I believe what if, if this is actually a, as the preamble for the Sermon on the Mount, this is the prog- a progression, a roadmap for, for Christian maturity. And you start coming to Christ, repenting, saying, I'm in, I, I judge myself to be in need of a Savior. That is poor in spirit. That is to say, uh, I, I'm poor in my own spirit. I realize the poverty of my spirit, and I'm coming to your spirit, Lord, your Holy Spirit, because I need you to step in in my place. Blessed are those who are finally poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you come to need your Savior, that's when heaven becomes yours. But you know what that does is it, it humbles us. It humbles us deeply. It, at the same time, it lifts us up. It's kind of a funny thing how that happens. It humbles us to the dust and lifts us out of the dust at the same time. But, so it humbles us and so we mourn, right? We mourn our sin in a way that we've never, we, we're finally poor in spirit. We see ourselves for who we are. We mourn our sin because we've never seen it uh, quite this way. And, and we shall be comforted because of the cross and the forgiveness of God. And that humility creates not weakness, but meekness. We will inherit the earth. I mean, that's just the upside-down kingdom that the meek would inherit the earth. We think the powerful, the greedy, the, the rich would inherit the earth. No. 
Not so, says the Lord, but those who have humbled themselves before God, who owns it all. So what happens when we are humbled before God, who is our Savior, we've mourned our sins, well, we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not for our own sake, but for His, which is what true righteousness is. And because Christ is our, um, is our ransom, Christ is, our, uh, is the name on our report card, um, we shall be satisfied. And what that creates in us is a heart to act like God, and so blessed are the merciful. So you see this progression, how, how it goes. And what that then creates is by God's incredible grace is a purity of heart. And we begin to see God even more and more. And, and, and we offer to others the, the peace with God that we have. We become peacemakers. And, and then, but when we begin to offer that peace with God, they don't, they don't always like it. What do you mean I don't have peace with God? What do you mean I need a Savior? It is offensive in that sense because they haven't come to the end of the, themselves yet. And, and we'll get persecuted. They don't like it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And blessed are you when others revile you. That's what happened to the prophets. You see how, beginning with poor in spirit, this becomes a, a connected roadmap for spiritual Christian maturity. And blessed are you if you're poor in spirit, not those people, but for you and for me. We have a wonderful description of the ministry of the church, what the church is at its best. It is salt and light. Salt makes it, it, salt serves as a preservative, and it makes you thirsty. Our life as a, as a church ought to be to, to make the world thirsty for Jesus to recognize that spiritual hunger that's in all of us. They're all made in the image of God. Everyone out there who's at Starbucks or you know, at the TPC or hitting golf balls or whatever, uh, you know, they're, they're all made in God's image. They were made for Him. They're, we have to help them recognize their thirst. We have to shed light on their, on their darkness. Not in an arrogant way, but in a way that says, I want you to know what I've found. I'm just going to share what I have and share uh, who I am with you. And then Christ says something really uh, profound to finish out this preamble. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. In other words, this this isn't new. um, I'm not creating any sort of new religion. I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, that's the smallest letter in the Greek language. I, I didn't know what it was when my mom said, I don't want to hear any more sass from you, not one iota. I was like, I don't know what an iota is, but um, <laughs> that's what it is. It's the smallest Greek letter. Not a dot, not an iota will pass from the law until all is accomplished. It's actually pronounced Yoda, but not <laughs> all is accomplished. Um, therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, saying the law is in place, do not relax. I'm not relaxing them. I'm just saying you got it wrong in how you approach them. Whoever relaxes them will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't mean again. 
I'm not kicking you out, because you're here by grace. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called grace in the kingdom of, uh, great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, who, by the way, pretty much get it perfectly on the outside. They spend their whole life learning to uh, keep things clean, uh, how to, uh, when to eat, what to eat, how, how many steps you can take on the Sabbath, uh, who can do what, and really getting good at judging other people for not doing those things. That was kind of their job. They were the heart police, or they're not the heart police, because they didn't really care much about the heart, but they were the act, act, activity police. And don't you just love those guys, the activity police? Um, so, so that's the preamble. And then we get into this section on the law. You have heard it said, but I say to you, six of these, six of these. And he, he starts out easy and makes it harder and harder. And this is what I mean by that. Very, the first one is, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, whoever uh, hates his brother, that's, I'm paraphrasing Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whew. I say it's easy, but it catches all of us, right? But very, very few of us will murder somebody in our life. A very small percentage of people. Uh, and, I mean, certainly not none, but a very small percentage. Well, the next one is adultery. Hmm. A small percentage, but not as small as murder by any stretch, Right? If you even look at somebody lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Um, um, then divorce. Okay, now you're getting in my business, right? All right, Jesus, you're getting in my business now. Then the promises you keep. Everybody makes promises. Oh, man, I swear to goodness. Oh. <laughs> Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Retaliation. Now we're now we're talking. See how it gets harder and harder. The the net gets wider and wider. Retaliation. Somebody hits you on the cheek. Boy, mm. turn the other one also. And then finally, love your enemies. You know what this is? Truly divine behavior. Because who loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him? Jesus, right? I mean, that is the ultimate act of love: is that he died for his enemies, you and me. We didn't want to be his enemies, but we, were, we didn't think we needed him. We weren't at the end of our rope yet. And Jesus is saying the law should govern not only your external behavior, but your internal motivation. You have not fulfilled the law. You may have done the law, but you have not fulfilled the law if you simply get through life and you have not murdered anyone. Because the law reflects the character of God, and the God is love. So if you're angry at your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. If you've lusted after someone, you've committed adultery. And, and it just levels all of us. Such so that the last verse in chapter 5 is, you must therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. <clears throat> That silence right there is what it ought to create in us. But that's not, it's not obtainable. It's not obtainable. 
But it's the law taken to the highest pitch. Jesus is in his, so that's, what, that's, that's the case I'm make, making. Is that if this is what I am to do in order to have access to God, then I need a substitute. I need an intermediary because I'm toast if this is me. Right? If this is a prescription, then I am in big trouble. But what my, what I'm, the case I'm making to you this morning is it's not a prescription for how we gain access to God. It is a description of the fruit we are trying to attain. Yes, we're not going to, but the righteousness of Christ is yours because of the cross, right? And so He who fulfilled all of this, I mean, you think about, I remember that movie, The Last Temptation of Christ, and it was all, you know, I, I never saw it, but I remember hearing about, um, I mean, I didn't see it because I was in eighth grade. I probably would have seen it, but um, the, um, it, it, he was having lustful thoughts about Mary Magdalene and all this stuff. He didn't. He was tempted in every way as we are, but yet did not sin, right? And so, uh, you have the perfection of Christ given to you. So that's, but, it, but without that, it leaves you going, I've I got to have somebody in my stead, right? Can I ask you one more thing, Joe? I had a problem with the adultery thing. If a man looks at a woman and sees that she's pleasing, it's saying that he's like lusting over her. I, I don't agree with I think it's action, not the, the looking in a appeal to the, the men seeing women or women seeing men. Well, all I can tell you is, is let's just, just just say right here. I mean, I, it just he's committed adultery in her heart, so, in his heart. So, I mean, I would much rather it just be action. You know, I mean, I hadn't committed adultery actively. Um, so, but... But it's kind of like people say, did that have because I never had sex with them? But you went out to lunch with them and you called them. The person had your heart... They just didn't have your body, but you still had that affair. Because an affair of the heart is the same thing as an affair. Well, I, I think so, and I think that's even further down the road. Right. So hold on now. Let's. We're, we got two more chapters now. <laughs> Y'all got to take it outside. <laughs> just don't hate each other. <laughs> but what? What? See, what's happening is it is making a squirm, big time. Is making a squirm because listen, if this is prescription, if this is saying just do this and you're good, honey, we're in big trouble. No, no, but it's easy and it's not meant to be. Easy. Well, no, it's not even meant to be easy if you have the righteousness of Christ, right? That's right. It is. That's why it's day, that's why it's repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, repent, repent. Okay, so then we talked having a stat, taking the law to the highest pitch. Then we talk about our religion and how it is lived before other people. Right? We're not going to get all the way to the end of this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. <laughs> so, what, what have you given up for Lent? What did you do? Lent? Mm-hmm. What did you, you gave up Lent for Lent? Yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> beware of giving up Lent for Lent uh, in front of other people. Um, <laughs> You know, it is. We can make an idol, or we can make a, a show out of uh, anything. And listen, I want to tell. I mean, I've, I've said this plenty of times before, but I, I, I make a show out of just being up here. I want. I'm, I'm not just only thinking about what God thinks of me when I'm preaching a sermon or when I'm teaching here. I'm thinking about what y'all I want y'all to like me. You know, I mean, I just. Um, but really, what this is saying is, we have an audience of one in our in our religion. Because it's really about relationship. 
No, he doesn't say it quite like that, but he certainly exposes the pharisaical tendency to say, to go out and say, you know, you know those people who, there's, there's a difference between people who can pray amazing prayers and think nothing of it sort of accidentally, and those who kind of put on a fake British accent while they're praying, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, 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 I, um, and so it, it's, it's a... Um, no, not me. Um, but it, again, this is why we approach forgiveness. Prayer is incredibly important. But there was a time in my life where I, I quit praying in groups of other people. Um, I didn't quit going to those groups, but I quit praying out loud because I was just very aware that I was not really talking to God, I was talking to the people. Um, there was a time when I was praying with somebody and they moved from praying to preaching pretty quickly. Lord, just help Joe understand that when he does that, he, um, <laughs> I don't think you're talking to God. I think you're talking to me at that point. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, they were right, you know, but, um, but just go to your prayer closet. Uh, I, um, so uh, it's all about who you trust and what's really important to you. Because Jesus says you've gotten your reward. I mean, you know, you, you can, you see these folks on TV and they're doing uh, amazing things. They got people falling down, sending them money, and they got awesome jets and whatever. But they've got their reward, but that's, that's the end of it. And Jesus says, am, am I enough is essentially what he's saying. Is your relationship with me such that, that you can hear from me? And again, this is a daily thing. Or do you need the affirmation of others? And if you're like me, that is a lifelong struggle. Prayer, fasting, almsgiving. It's very hard to be generous, isn't it? It's easy to be impressed with us or compare ourselves to, to other people. It's really hard for me, maybe not for you, but it's really hard for me to give freely. Um... I justify not giving to other people because I give to the church. But even when I give to the church, I have a hard time. Like, say, I got paid on Friday. I don't think I've given yet. You know, I mean, it's just, a, it's just, a, it's just hard. Martin Luther again said um, that there's three conversions: that the conversion of the heart, followed by the conversion of the head, followed very, very uh, long thereafter, the conversion of the wallet. <laughs> <laughs> the last and the hardest. Jesus says, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. In other words, what your heart treasures. Um, Your heart's the treasure map. It's what shows you what you really treasure. And if you don't treasure your treasure, then you can give it away because you trust God. This second section, this this uh, chapter six is saying, "What do you really trust in?" And we get a lot into um, anxiety. Whew. We talk about a passage of scripture from our time for our time. Sinclair Ferguson uh, in that book writes, "Anxiety can never be cured by getting more of what we already have." But why do we why do we gather? To ourselves, why are we not generous? Because we think we have to have this stuff. Right? Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. <laughs> Anything. They never worry. It's an illustration. It's not, you know. Um, 
Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And everything else will be added to you. Everything you need. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? It's about the relationship. And then chapter 7, as we close, is about uh, loving God and that relationship will actually produce the fruit of uh, loving others. So love God, love your neighbor. Right? It's going to produce that fruit. You're not judging. You're judging yourself first. You're looking at the plank in your own eye before the speck in your brother's eye. Um, you're practicing the golden rule. You're doing what others, doing to others the way that you'd want them to do to you. There's much to say about entering through the narrow gate. And I, I just don't have time to even begin that. There's a scary... The, the, the two things at the end are very scary. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty good, good mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Oh, that's scary. Because it's not about the outward works, though, is it? I don't know that I've ever cast out a demon or that I ever will. So it's hard to think that I would you know, even measure up to that outwardly. So I hope that I will, what I offer to God inwardly, which is nothing. Sometimes nothing is the, only thing, the one thing you don't have, right? Barrenness. We offer that to God and say, I need a Savior. Whoever does these words of mine is like the one who built his house on the rock. Whoever does it is like built his house on the sand. It's obviously a pretty easy foundation metaphor uh, for our house. And he, and he ends it. And they are amazed, astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. It seems that there's nothing in it for Jesus. He's just pointing them to the end of themselves and the beginning of a relationship with God over and over again. Sermon on the Mount is hard. Hard, hard, hard. And if you take it as the thing you must do in order to be a real Christian, you're in deep trouble. But if you take it as the thing you strive to do because you are a Christian, this is what makes Christianity different than every other religion. Every other religion is built, as best I can tell, every single philosophy, every single religion other than Christianity that I have ever come across is based on your works in order to get you to the promised land of whatever that is, to God, to Nirvana, to whatever. Only Christianity says that God has taken the steps. He has justified you. And it is in the strength and the rest of that justification that you begin to live a life that pleases Him. So, if we see the Sermon on the Mount through the lens of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it becomes not a burden but a grace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Next week, we are looking at what the kingdom of heaven is like. We are in uh, Matthew chapter 13. And then um, in two weeks, interestingly enough, again, we have Luke 15, which is the same passage as we have that I'll be preaching on that morning. So that will present its own challenge for me. But that's, Luke 15 is the prodigal son. So one of my favorites. God bless you. See you in church.